Well, I should be wearing my John Maxwell shirt because I'm going to start out this morning with a John Maxwell quote. So, uh, John Maxwell says that uh, leaders can impress people from a distance. Leaders can influence people when they get closer up. But leaders impact others only when they are in a close relationship with them. And if you stop and think about that, that is, I mean, that's, that's true of Jesus. He impressed people from a distance. He influenced a lot of people when he got closer up. But the people that he really impacted were those that he was in real close relationship with for those three years that he was here on earth. The people that they say turned the world upside down, those disciples, were the people that Jesus was in a close relationship with for those three years. Well, that statement's not only true about leaders, but it's true about churches. It's true about you. It's just a, a truth that you and I need to recognize that if we really want to impact other people, we have to get in some close relationships with them. Um, and Paul this morning, as we close out this series in Colossians, we're going to look at those last verses of chapter 4, and um, chapter 4 of Colossians. And as we do that, one of the things that you will notice is that Paul is, is talking about how to make a great impact. And he, and he says there's three things. You have to prioritize prayer because none of us are good enough to really make a huge impact without that. And Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer to make that huge impact. You have to practice wisdom and you have to prize teamwork. You have to be willing to work with other people. So Colossians chapter 4, I want to read verses 2 through 4 and then verse 12 to start with. Paul says, devote yourself yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open up a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Epiphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Now Paul says the first thing, if you and I want to make an impact, we have to be devoted to prayer. Now to be devoted, that means to be constant at it, to be real committed to it. It means to do it in other places. Paul talks about praying continually. He talks about praying steadfastly in other places. He talks about praying without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians, I think it's chapter 5. Um, but Paul says, if you and I are really going to make a difference, and this can be in a number of areas in your life, but if you really want to make an impact, you need to be devoted to prayer simply because God can do what you cannot do. God can accomplish through you, what you cannot accomplish without him. And so you need to pray. 
You need to learn to pray to God about the things that are you care about in your life. You need to take those things to him and say, will you help me accomplish what I can't accomplish on my own? C.S. Lewis, um, the great English scholar, said, the moment you wake up every morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. <laughs> And the first job in the morning consists of shoving all of that away. All those wild animals, pushing them back. And then in listening to that other voice, taking the other point of view, letting other larger, stronger, and quieter life come flowing into your life. So when you wake up in the morning, you have all these thoughts coming at you like wild animals, and he says, Push that away and let God speak to you first thing in the morning. Paul says here, another word he says in this passage is being watchful. So watch and pray. When Nehemiah came back with the Israelites after Jerusalem had been destroyed and they were going to rebuild the walls and there were there were enemies down uh, the, the Samaritans. There were Sambalad and Tobiah. Uh, the Samaritan, and they did not want to see the Jews rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so they were trying to destroy those walls as fast as they built them up. And Nehemiah encouraged the people to watch and pray back then also. That meant that they, while they were working, they were praying. And while they were working, they were praying with their eyes open because they were watching to see what the enemy was planning and what he was doing. And so they were watching and praying. Now I suggest to you that if you're praying while you're going down the road, you ought to be praying with your eyes open. Um, and there's a lot of times we've all been trained to pray, you know, with our eyes shut to keep us focused on what we're doing. But a lot of times you and I really need to learn to pray with our eyes open where we are alert to what is happening, what the enemy is doing, and what, what's happening around us and all of that. We need to pray with our eyes open. We need to watch and pray. Prayer, he says, also is to be done with thankfulness. One of the first things, and, and this is um, new territory for me, but one of the things that we need to learn to do is to put ourselves in a thankful attitude before we start to pray. A lot of the reason why you and I don't get past requests in prayer is because we have not placed ourselves in a thankful attitude. We haven't looked for something to be thankful to God for before we start praying. And so all we can think about is what we need. And God, I want this. And God, I want that. And, you know, and we have this big laundry list that we hold to God when we pray. And it's simply because we haven't learned to be thankful and we haven't put ourselves in that attitude before we start to pray. And so at least occasionally we ought to back off a of prayer and open our eyes and watch and say, Oh God, look at this. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. And it completely will change the dynamic of, of our prayer time. Um, and then I want you to notice that prayer should be specific. Prayer should be pur purposeful. Um, 
Paul was looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Now, here he is in prison. If I'm in prison, the first thing I'm going to be praying for is to get out. Right? That's not what Paul prayed for. (laughs) That's not even what he asked them to pray for. He prayed that while he was in prison, that he would find opportunities to share the message of the gospel. Sometimes we are so hepped in prayer on getting out of our circumstances that we don't take time to pray specifically that God will help us to find an opportunity for the gospel in our circumstances. And Paul specifically prays and he teaches them to pray that whatever circumstance you are in, look and pray for an opportunity in that circumstance. It could be that God has allowed you to be in the circumstance you're in, whether you like it or not. So while you are there, what opportunity do you have to share the gospel? Paul prays that God would give him clarity in proclaiming the gospel. Now, we read read in our Sunday school lesson this morning from uh, 1 Peter, I think we were in 1 Peter or 2 Peter, um, where, where Peter writes about Paul and he says, now Paul writes some very difficult things to understand. Have any, have any of you felt that way before? You read the Bible and it just goes... Huh? What is what is he saying? You know, and, and there are times when that happens to me, especially reading Paul. Because I mean, you can get into Romans, you just gotta, oh. <laughs> and, and there's other passages that take some work to understand, and, and all of that. But but Paul says here that he wants to proclaim the gospel with clarity, make it easy to understand. And so Paul is praying for that, even though he writes with some hard things to, that are hard to understand, as Peter says. Paul prayed that when he preached the gospel, it would be clear. And you can pray that God will help you in whatever way, you, opportunity you have to share Jesus, that God will make it clear and plain and easy for people to understand and then Epaphras, I, I skipped down to verse 12 here and included that here because Epaphras was one of those guys who was a great prayer warrior. And I noticed none of you have named children after him. Um, but, you know, <laughs> his name was Epaphras and he was a great prayer warrior. And um, he was the guy that helped found and start the church at Colossae. Uh, and the letter here that we're, we're reading is the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossians. But I want you to notice what Epaphras prayed. He prayed for the Colossians that they would stand firm in the will of God. Whatever God's will for you is, pray that you will stand firm in that. When you're praying for other people, Pray that they will stand, know what God's will is and stand firm in that will. And then he prayed that they would be mature. Grown up. Grown up in the faith. And then lastly, he prayed that they would be fully ushered. 
And a lot of times, one of the things that we need to make sure that we deal with in our Christian faith is, do I know that I'm saved? And Paul says to Paul, Paul, you know, Epaphras prays that they would be assured, fully assured that they had no doubt about whether they were Christians and that they had a, a relationship with Jesus. So if we want to make a great impact, Paul says we need to prioritize prayer. Secondly, he says that we need to practice wisdom, especially towards outsiders. Listen to these words. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, A.W. Tozer was a great pastor and theologian, uh, Canadian. Um, I believe it was from Toronto, but um, he, and he's passed away many years ago. But he wrote a, wrote a number of great books, and one of them is The Knowledge of the Holy. And the whole book is about the attributes of God and, and who God is. And in that book, he was talking about God's wisdom. And I want you to see how he defines wisdom here. Wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in a proper relationship to all, and is thus able to work towards predestined goals with flawless precision. Now, let me uh, just um, summarize that. Wisdom, he says, is to be able to know where you want to go and to know the best way of getting there. And, you know, it, it knows all the pieces of the puzzle on the way to getting there. It sees all of that and makes sense of it, and it gets you to your, your desired goal. And, of course, he's talking about God here, and God is able to do all of that perfectly. So he's not talking about here human wisdom, although I want to apply it to us. Because wisdom is really about having a goal, the right goal, the best goal for you, and knowing the best way of getting to that goal. That's what wisdom, practical wisdom is about. And Paul says here that if we want to impact people for Jesus, the best goal for everyone is to come to know Jesus. The best goal for everyone in the world is for them to come to know Jesus as their Savior. Practical wisdom also implies that you and I find the best way of helping people come to know Jesus. In other words, there are a lot of bad ways to introduce people to Jesus. Some of you have experienced those. <laughs> there are good ways and there are bad ways. So you want to use practical wisdom in regard to how you relate to people who do not know Jesus and how you get them into a relationship with Jesus. Now, if I were to take apart, our Suburban has about 205,000 miles on it or something or other, and uh, but it's running great as long as you take good care of it and all of that, and, and we have... But um, if I were to decide that it needed overhaul, I could just take that thing apart. And I probably could do a pretty good job of that. 
But I would be in severe trouble when I went to put it back together. <laughs> if I took it all apart and laid it all out all over my garage, I would not have a clue what it should even look like when I got it back together. <laughs> and I would not be able to take all those little pieces that I had taken apart and know where they fit and how they all went together to make the motor that currently runs. And when I did get all done, there would be lots of pieces left over and I would have a motor that didn't run. Or I could take it to Dean and as long as he got to take it apart and he didn't have to come take the parts that I had taken apart, he could put it all back together and make it run better than it was. That's, you know, an amazing thing. So that's what Paul is saying here, is that you and I need to have practical wisdom in regard to the way that we relate to people that don't know Jesus. Now, um, we, we need to be wise in our relationship with them. And he says two things about that. First of all, that means that we have to watch our behavior in terms, and we have to think of our behavior not in terms of how we process it, but how does someone who doesn't know Jesus process our behavior? How do they perceive it? How do they look at it? And all of that. And then the second thing he says is we have to talk and walk <coughs> wisely, making the most of every opportunity. Now, we're always witnesses. Like I say, there's good ways and bad ways to get people to come to know Jesus as their Savior. There, we're always a witness. Sometimes it's a good witness, and sometimes it's not such a good witness. Um, but here's a good question for us to think about. If there was a private eye, a private detective that followed us around would they come to know Jesus by following us around? Would there be the kind of life in us that would attract them to Jesus, that would convince them that we really are followers of Jesus? Now, people without Jesus, the scriptures say, are spiritually dark. There's a lot of things that they don't understand. But the thing about them is that they have great discernment and understanding of things that sometimes we lose track of. <laughs> they sometimes have a great deal of discernment about everyday life and ethics and morality. They can spot hypocrisy and inconsistency and a lack of character, sometimes a lot quicker than we as Christians do. <laughs> And so we have to watch that. So Paul or Peter says, Paul says, Paul says, be very careful how you act, what you say, how you live your life with outsiders, because the end goal is for them to come to know Jesus, and knowing Jesus is the very best thing in all of life. So wisdom, first of all, implies good behavior. Secondly, it implies good conversation. Our speech should be noted by several things. First of all, it should be full of grace. 
Now, one of the bad ways of trying to lead people to Jesus is, is to be a person who doesn't have much grace in your life. There needs, Jesus came, the scripture says, John chapter 1, verse 12, I think it is, Jesus came full of grace and truth. You can speak truth with grace. We don't have to lamb blast and be angry and shout and hold picket cards and, and all of that kind of stuff a lot of times. We, we need to be people with outsiders who can speak the truth and, and stand firm in the truth, but do it with grace. And then Paul says our conversation needs to be salted or seasoned with grace. Salt brings out flavor in food and it preserves uh, food from corruption. Um, so our speech should do the same thing. It should enhance the lives of the people that we come across and it should protect them. It should warn them from dangers uh, that would come into their lives. And so we ought to look for opportunities and seize opportunities to witness uh, for Jesus. And then the third thing he says here is that we need to use our conversation so that we may know how to answer everyone regarding our faith. Now that's not being able that's not saying that you and I have to be apologists, that we have to know, you know, be able to answer every question that they raise. There's so many things that I can't do, but every one of us can talk about what Jesus has done for us. That's what Paul is talking about here. Being able to just share our faith and just say, this is what Jesus has done in my life. The last thing that Paul says, if we want to make a difference, if we want to make a great impact, we have to prize other people. We have to prize teamwork. That you and I cannot make a big difference by ourselves. I want you to just hear this passage. Because he, I mean, he spends a fourth of the book talking about these people. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about his circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor in Demas, sends greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry that you have received in the Lord. 
I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. When we think of the Apostle Paul, we think of one phenomenal missionary. In fact, we just know him as the greatest missionary that has ever lived. But if you strip the Apostle Paul of all the people in this passage and of all the people in Romans chapter 16 and all of the people that made up his team, I dare say that the Apostle Paul would hardly be known to us today. The Apostle Paul was great and the greatest missionary ever in the Christian faith because he prized people around him and he mentored them, he led them, and he equipped them, and then he turned them loose to make a difference in all these different towns. Like Colossae, Paul had never ever been there. But Paul gets credit for planning this church. (laughs) But he'd never been there. Paul was the greatest missionary because he prized the people around him. Yesterday, um, I went in to help Jim and Kathy Conser for a few minutes, and I I was so encouraged. Lyle showed up, and and, uh, Nita sent him. I don't know if she just wanted rid of him for the morning or what, but, but he showed up and made a difference. And um, Jim called me yesterday afternoon then. Um, and he was just so encouraged. And, and Jim's had some difficult days in the last couple months and called uh, on some of those occasions. But he called yesterday afternoon and he was so encouraged just because of all the help he had gotten. And, and they did have quite a number of people show up uh, yesterday to help finish moving everything and to see it in one facility and all of that. Um, it made a difference. Just a team of people working together, doing uh, you know what a couple can't do. And, and especially since uh, Kathy's knee has uh, is needing surgery and all of that, there's a lot. I mean, don't tell Jim I said this, but, you know, and you won't hardly believe it, but he's the brains behind the operation, and she does all the work. <laughs> and so it's a struggle right now because she is pretty much immobile and, <laughs> and all of that. But, but anyway, um, that was a boost. That was a huge encouragement to them yesterday. Well, John Maxwell says, as I said earlier, leaders impress from a distance. They influence closer up but they really only impact people who they bring into a close relationship. Not only did Paul impact these people, but these people impacted Paul as he worked with them. And Paul was able to do incredible things in first century because of the people he brought around him. I want us just to walk through some of these people. Tychicus labored with Paul for three years at Ephesus. He carried letters of of the Ephesians and Colossians to those churches back and forth. 
There was Onesimus, who was the runaway slave of Philemon. We have that short little one-chapter book at the end of our Bibles, um, of, you know, that was written. Philemon was a slave master that Paul wrote to. And, and believe it or not, I mean, he converts this Onesimus, this slave that's run away, runs into Paul. Paul converts him, leads him to Christ, and then Paul you know, has the nerve to ask him, now you go back to your master and take this letter that I'm writing to him. I will tell him how to treat you. <laughs> and, and, you know, and this one, ah, but he, he takes the letter and goes back and, and gives that letter to him. And then Onesimus and Philemon become major people of influence in the church. Aristarchus, Aristarchus, uh, was a leading Jewish Christian who was with Paul during the time of the, the riots at Ephesus where Paul's life was in danger. He was also there. He was traveling with Paul on that terrible shipwreck that he had on the way to Rome uh, at Malta. I, that's somewhere towards the end of, of Acts. And you know, at the end of Paul's life, when Paul lives in prison, um, Aristarchus chooses to live in prison so that he can watch over Paul and be with him. That's a real friend, don't you think? Wow. And he served Paul in prison by being with Paul in prison. There's Marcus, who you know we know as John Mark. Um, he's the author of the Gospel of Mark, but he didn't start out very great. He went with Paul on his first missionary journey. He was young and he just thought, this isn't for me, and he quit. And Paul wrote him off and said, no more, I'm not working with this young man. Paul went on the next missionary trip and John Mark wanted to go along and Paul said, no way, I'm not taking you. So Barnabas, his cousin, said, okay, Paul, then I'm, I'm going to leave you. You go on your trip. I'm going to go on another trip. I'm going to take John Mark, and I'm going to reclaim him, and we're going to make something useful out of him. And Barnabas did that, and, and pretty soon John Mark was doing incredible things, and Paul came back around to the point of saying, I was wrong. This young man, he's valuable, and uh, you tell him to come to me. <laughs> you know? And, and so... Here's a young man that we wouldn't even have the Gospel of Mark if it wasn't for Barnabas taking aside a young man that Paul had given up hope on. Wow. Then there's Jesus Justice. Jesus was his Jewish name, Roman. Uh, his Roman name was Justice. Um, but he was a Jewish believer, and he was just somebody that also helped Paul in prison, although he didn't live there in prison with Paul. Uh, there's Epaphras. Uh, we've talked about earlier the prayer warrior. Um, there's Demas, who worked with uh, Luke and Paul. And then uh, there's Luke. A and get this, this is interesting. Luke is a Greek physician. He's a doctor. Very organized. And he writes the Gospel of Luke for us. And he writes the early history of Acts. But he was probably the only Gentile that ever that God ever used in any of the scriptures to write the scriptures. The only one that we know of. All the rest of them were Jews. But the other thing that's interesting to me, Paul did all kinds of miracles of healing. We have those recorded in Acts and, and different places where Paul laid hands on people and, and they were healed. And yet Paul has his own thorn in the flesh 
that he never gets healed of. And Paul has this doctor who travels with him throughout most of his life. And it was by traveling with Paul that Luke heard all the stories of Jesus and and all of that and was able to write the gospel. But it's interesting that God uses in Paul's life both the miraculous and the doctors. And so I know there's a lot of debate in circles about whether you use doctors or you just pray for healing and all of that. And I say the scriptures say both. The scriptures say both. We ought to pray for healing when we're sick, and we ought to, you know, expect that, and we ought to use a doctor for everything they're worth. <laughs> so um, that that's just a, a side point that doesn't help us with our sermon. Um, but here, here's the point that I want to make this morning. Do you see the great variety of people that Paul poured himself into? And without those people, Paul would have never been the greatest missionary that ever lived. John Maxwell says, to make a difference in the lives of others, you have to invest in yourself. You have to invest in others. And you have to be part of a team. So if you're going to make a difference, don't try to do it alone. Don't try to do it by yourself. Pray. Involve God. Practice wisdom. And then get other people involved. Jesus wants us to prioritize prayer. He wants us to practice wisdom. And he wants us to prize teamwork.